I spent two days basically tied to my mast. I'd stand there for hours and the waves would just crash right on me, constantly getting hit by waves. It felt like relieving because inside the boat was just so hot. You just might recognize that voice. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Matt Rutherford. Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. First, a thank you to our sponsor, Shearwater Sailing, a sailboat charter business out of Monterey Bay run by Kevin Wasbauer. Kevin's a friend and has been on the show. In fact, I interviewed him on episode 85, so you can go back and listen to that. Shearwater Sailing offers offshore excursions aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. Having sailed aboard Atalanta on Monterey Bay, I can tell you she is a comfortable, very safe, beautiful, and fast boat. You can book private sailing charters for a couple of hours or the full day, go wildlife viewing or take a sunset cruise on Monterey Bay, or even book a multi-day adventure and spend the night on the hook. Now, June 4th through the 8th, Kevin will be sailing Atalanta from Monterey to Santa Barbara and back. And this is a great opportunity for some offshore experience. If you've never been offshore, I really can't think of a better way to get your sea legs and learn in the process. Or if you've simply been wanting to get back out on the ocean, get in touch with Kevin. Do this passage. You can reach Kevin directly at 650-743-1389 or email him at info at shearwatersailing.net and discuss the possibilities of sailing aboard Atalanta. Well, almost exactly 10 years ago now, Matt Rutherford spent 309 days at sea, sailing his 27-foot Albina Vega, St. Brendan, nonstop from Annapolis, north through the Northwest Passage, and then south to Cape Horn, and then home to Annapolis. He talks in detail about this record-breaking trip and many of his other adventures, both at sea and overland, in his own podcast, Single-Handed Sailing. And today, Matt's running an ocean research nonprofit and working feverishly to launch the organization's latest vessel, a huge 72-foot Bruce Roberts-designed steel schooner named Marie Tharp. Now, Matt and I met up on the Marie Tharp for this conversation. The boat's at Harrington Harbor North Marina in Annapolis, and I think she'll be splashing in the water any day now. Matt and I talked about the boat, the projects he's got left before the, the next expedition he's going on, and a research expedition that he and his partner at the time, Nicole Trenholm, did back in 2013, when together they sailed a 30-foot day sailor from San Francisco to Japan. After spending the previous month basically building that boat up from a bare hull. It's quite a story, so let's get to it. Thanks for doing this, Matt. I usually ask people to start by introducing themselves, but I think most people uh, don't need an introduction to you. But if, you, uh, if you're in company who aren't familiar with your exploits, what do you say you do? Uh, well, at this point, I run an ocean research organization that I created in 2012. 
<clears throat> previous to that, um, I started sailing in 2004, 2008. I sailed alone across the Atlantic. 2009, sailed alone across the Atlantic. Uh, did this whole Europe, Africa, Caribbean loop on a 323 Pearson. Then um, circumnavigated North and South America nonstop, single-handed on a 27-foot Alban Vega, which is sort of the big claim to fame, so to speak, uh, which gave me the ability to create an ocean research nonprofit. Not that it gave me a lot of money, but it gave me at least some kind of a reputation and, and the beginning of a network, I guess. The name of the nonprofit? It is Ocean Research Project. I give it the simplest possible name that's very self-described. It's not the greatest name, but I've never been great at naming anything. But it's but descriptive. It is descriptive. You don't got to wonder what the hell we do. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty much in the title. That's basically it. And we've been doing 2013 and 14. We were doing uh, microplastics expeditions in the Atlantic and the Pacific. 2015, 16, and 18, we were up in the Arctic doing some research with a group of NASA scientists called Ocean Melting Greenland. Then we got this new boat donated at the end of 2018, and then we spent the last few years just trying to finish this boat because the boat was never finished, and it was abandoned for a long time, and everything needed replaced. It didn't have an interior. This is where we're sitting is on your boat. Tell yeah, us a little yeah. bit about this boat. Go back to how you came into being an owner of this boat. Basically, I have a podcast called the Single-Handed Sailing Podcast. So basically, I was sitting in a Toronto boat show. And I was doing some talks at the boat show there. It's, anyways, I'm sitting at the hotel in Toronto. It's like five degrees outside. I'm doing a podcast, and I start just rambling, as I often do, about how Bruce Roberts 65 would make a great research vessel because it's just it's not a fast boat, but they're big, giant tubby sort of boats that can yeah. hold a lot of people and a lot of gear and a lot of fuel and water and all that kind of stuff. And somebody was listening and I got an email a couple of days later saying, Hey, I know a guy with like a half built Bruce Roberts who's thinking about donating it. You know, you interested? And I'm like, well, sure. Of course. Well, our research vessel was basically broken at that point. We had done, I, I didn't have much money when I came back trip around America's. So I got a 42 foot Colvin Gazelle, which is a 1960s design. It was built in the 1980s. It was kind of slapped together. It was made out of 10-gauge metal. It was a steel boat, but 10-gauge is pretty thin. Yeah. Uh, a lot of rust issues. I had to rip the deck off and replace uh. it because it was all rotten. And, you know, it was a rotten, rusty boat. I fixed the best I could and band-aided it the best, you know, with the money we had and the time we had. And that's the boat we used in 2013. We mapped the eastern side of the Atlantic Garbage Patch. We were at sea for... I think 73 days on that trip and that's the one where you ran across that derelict swan yeah i tell that story recently on a yeah. podcast i think the episode is something like finding an abandoned boat in a garbage patch or something like that uh but yeah we found a 48 that's a crazy foot swan. story but yeah uh, yeah we'll, we'll let whole... people go listen to your podcast yeah and that that, that that happened at the end of the research like two days after we wrapped up uh mapping out nobody had got to the eastern side of the north atlantic garbage patch so there was still an area that was uncharted really and we you know it's important to know how much plastic trash is in the ocean in these uh. and then the pacific garbage patch the north pacific really is by far the most charted and researched garbage patch on earth the north atlantic also has a pretty considerable garbage patch about half the size or so which is still whatever the size of texas or something like that we used that boat 2013, 15, 16. And by the time we got back in 16, the engine was barely, basically the engine died right when we got back. It locked up on, uh, on Back Creek in Annapolis. <laughs> and I had to drop an anchor in the middle of Back Creek near some ways down. And the moment I started dropping this anchor, this guy ran out and started screaming at me, you can't drop an anchor there, da, da, da. 
And of course, I just ignored him and dropped the anchor, and I don't know, I probably swore at him or some shit, <laughs> you know. But um, but yeah, so the boat was beat to death. We ended up getting rid of it because you know you're at that point. You do another major refit. You got rid of it before you had this. One. Yeah, yeah. We okay. had this weird period where we didn't have a boat at all. It was like a dark time for the nonprofit, wow. really. You know, it had been a huge. We've struggled for funding in a in a massive way. And what were you thinking and, about? In terms of getting the boat, in terms of you, were, well, I knew, obviously you kind of knew that this kind of boat would be ideal. But how did you envision coming across a boat like this? I did. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. I just knew that the boat we had was not the right boat. I mean, you could only have really four people on the boat. Uh, even then, it was pretty tight. You know, it's a yeah. pretty narrow boat for a forty-two because it's a '60s design. It was a very slow boat because it had a full keel. It was a cat rig schooner which is a weird rig. You got two unstayed masts. Yeah. It sailed like a well-trimmed refrigerator. <laughs> it was um, I, it was a 100-mile-a-day boat. Okay. My 323 Pearson, I sailed across the Atlantic twice alone, was a 100-mile-a-day boat right. on average. You a know, little so, different size. Yeah, and you could get up to, I mean, in a gale, I mean, we got 160, 170. On average, you're going much slower. So it was just a slow boat. That, it had a pilot house, which was nice for the Arctic, keep you out of the elements. It had some good aspects. We did a pretty good job refitting it. I knew that... We were at a crossroads with the boat where either we're going to dump a lot of time and money into it, and then we're going to have something that still wasn't really appropriate for what we needed. I needed to get out from underneath of it, really. Mm-hmm. I sold it, took a loss. I still owe $28,000 on that boat to this day. Huh. I'm still paying off the damn loan for the thing. Yeah, it sucks. But, you know, whatever. I mean, I've, I've acquired a lot of debt trying to run this nonprofit because, you know, when you create your own nonprofit, there's nobody above you to give you a check. You know, most nonprofit organizations that deal with ocean and ocean issues are outreach organizations. And an outreach organization, you can fight that battle from behind a desk. You got basically three steps in any issue. It doesn't really matter as much if it's ocean or not, but somebody's got to do the research to figure out what the problem is. Then somebody's got to do the outreach, which is educating the public about the issue. And then the last step is policy change, where then you try to create new laws and new policies to, to help lessen that that issue's impact so we're on the front end most of them are outreach and education yeah so you need an office and you need some employees and that's basically the nonprofit structure but us we need a research vessel run four or five month research expeditions as everybody knows who who listens to this podcast boats are not cheap they take a lot of time and money and so on so yeah it was a weird kind of situation i you know we didn't give up Although I did become a yacht broker part-time because I needed to figure out, okay, if this all falls apart, what the hell am I going to do? So in working, did you ever see a boat come across that you said, oh, that might work? Or were you tempted? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see boats all the time. Not all the time, but you see them often enough. But, you know, we had no money. I personally was in a lot of debt, which I still am. And we didn't have a vessel. And things things were difficult in a lot of different ways. And so you so, put this call out on on the podcast, just yep. just saying this would be, this would be the kind of boat that would be perfect. Yeah, yep, yep, and um, and so I'm you know kind of expecting it to be like a a half built. Normally, half built boats are just like you know well, they got water sloshing around in them. They're just like rusted yeah, well, first, out. So so somebody responds to this call, right? Someone somebody responds to this and said, "Hey, I've got a boat. I'm <laughs> that they, somebody they, knows." They, yeah, yeah. They said, "I I know somebody who's thinking about." donating their Bruce Roberts 65 da 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 which is like wow and uh but but you don't get your hopes up but it was never finished and you know it's yeah. this this half finished boat yeah well first off you don't know if they'll actually donate it second off yeah. you don't know what the condition of the vessel is and if it is 
a hull with a bunch of water sloshing around in it, right. then it's going to be too much for us to take a on. A steel boat with water sloshing around in it. Which happens. Not good. Yeah, yeah, and you find that a lot with these, ha- especially metal boats. You find these half-built metal boats, and you'll see them like on Yacht World or something once in a while, and they're usually just unbelievable money pits. It's like, yeah, the, yeah so. Yeah, they, they say the most expensive boat is a free boat, right? Yeah, yeah, it very well can be. A cheap boat can be the most expensive boat. So anyways, I, I drive to Delaware because this boat's up in Delaware. Drive a few hours, get up there, and, and I'm walking down the dock. And I'm like, oh, this boat has a rig. You know, it has lifelines. I see some windlasses. I'm like, you know. I mean, it was covered in mold and shit. Yeah. It is uh, literally. It had mold all down the sides of it. It was really raw. And interior, there was no real interior in it mm-hmm. besides the most basic kind of plywood. But there wasn't, like, anywhere to, like, l- l- you know, sit down or anything. And there's a couple of half-built bunks that were needed to get ripped apart. But basically, the boat needed an interior, and all the systems were 20 years old. So every system, plumbing, electrical, you name it, needed to be ripped out. The mast needed work. I mean, the boat never had a sail up, so the boat's never sailed. Wow. The engine had about 60 hours on it, and it was a 20-year-old rebuild, which is not a good sign. Yeah. Because you can, the engines can actually rust from the inside out. Uh, they call it glazing on the cylinder walls, which is the nice yeah. way of saying your shit's rusting on the inside, basically. Yeah. But luckily, the guy didn't fix a bad through haul that he needed to winterize the engine. Although okay. he could have, if you wanted to get creative with it, figured out some way to do it. But uh, basically, he couldn't close the through haul. Okay. Uh, so uh, he kept the space heater in the engine room for years every winter. I think it actually helped the engine maintain a constant wow. temperature. See, the problem with the the... the the glazing on the cylinder walls is because engines can sweat. You get something hot and cold, you know, the changing of sure, temperatures with sure. metal, just like a can of, you, know, you get a can of Coke, you'll see it sweat, or a can right. of beer or something. Well, engines can get that on the inside. They can literally sweat on the inside uh, if there's enough temperature change. It happens during, you know, winter to, you know, warmer days to colder days. So long and short is it took a while to get the engine to start. It took like almost eight, nine months to get the boat out of that marina in Delaware mm. and motor it down to the, the sort of Annapolis area uh, where we are. We're a half hour south of Annapolis right now. But the engine ran fine. It was a big, like, who the hell knows? Yeah, I got my yeah. towboat insurance, but I was like, I don't even know if they could tow this thing. I'm 110,000 pounds. Like, are they, if, you know, they going to be able to tow me by a little, little <laughs> outboard freaking towboat in the bay? So, but we made it down. The engine ran great. There was a lot of electrolysis issues because the boat didn't have zincs for probably the last 15 years. Wow. And so I had to do a bunch of welding. Um, I found yeah, some you were talking about that on your podcast. You had to rip a bunch of stuff out. And yeah, I've been ripping ripping and... insulation out because there's a lot of blown insulation. The guy actually built the boat to go to the Arctic. That was the whole idea when he built the boat. Okay. but Which um, is perfect because that's where you want to take it, right? Yeah, yeah. Then I think that's why he donated it or what helped him donate it it still took fuck it probably took him six months to actually get him to sign the paperwork you know from the first time mm. i met the guy to when the guy actually signed it over mm. it's one thing to think about donating it but it's i understand it's painful and difficult sure. i know he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars the boat was redesigned by bruce roberts himself this is a voyager 650 most bruce roberts 65s are a new york 65 okay. that's probably like 95 percent of them there is something called a voyager 655 but very few of them were ever built. And then this is a Voyager 650, the redesigned version of the 655, oh, okay. specifically for the guy, you know, Zan oh, was so his name. so there was one This is the one and only ever built. This All is right. one 650. There's probably oh, like three or four 655s or something like that. If you okay. go on Bruce Roberts' website, you can see a couple pictures of the 655s that were built. Nice-looking boats. 
but Zan had him redesign that specifically for his purposes, and part of that was Arctic related. Wow! So it's got really tall freeboard. It was supposed to be polar bear proof, you know, between the tall lifelines. I've got very tall lifelines and very tall freeboard. I mean, I don't know. A polar bear's probably not going to climb up onto your boat, anyways. But probably not. But, but nice insurance. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad that they thought about it, I guess. And then there's a lot of insulation everywhere, and I had to tear some of it out because. When you weld the outside of a hull, it creates a very hot spot on the sure, inside yeah. in a lot of boats. You hear about steel boats catching on fire from welding oh, on a regular basis. That's so, the last thing you want after you've done all this beautiful woodwork inside. Yeah, and we, were, we had to stay on top of it. As we were building out cabins one after the next, we had to you know gut areas and weld. And it takes two people to do it. I just want to stop and say on that, because last time I was here and just popped in really briefly right before the pandemic what two years ago now and it was a shell then and mm -hmm. so coming on board now and seeing all the work you've done living on board over the past two years it is gorgeous you really i know you feel like you still have a shitload to get done before you take yeah. off but the amount of work you've done and the the galley here i mean we're just sitting in the I assume this is the main salon yeah, area. Yeah, there's a table. You can see the table leaning up over yeah, there. Yeah. And um, that goes over here behind and me. And the wood's cherry. Is that right? Some of it's marine ply. Some of it isn't. just depends. So you paint that white. We do like a beadboard, uh, a vertical beadboard in some places. Uh, the wall is actually horizontal. Well, it's, they call it ceiling, even though it's not oh, on okay. the ceiling. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, but ceiling is a term for wood on the wall. The so you have yellow wood. pine on the walls with cherry trim, and then you have some of the other walls are just painted white. It's an off-white uh, um, oil enamel, which is hard to get an oil enamel these days. Huh. And then all the other trim is cherry. And it, there is no veneer anywhere. All of it is just solid chunks of wood. So we've got about 600 board feet of cherry in wow. this boat at this point. So yeah, you can refinish anything. I mean, you can repaint the 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 you know walls. You can re-varnish and sand, and you could yeah. you could refinish this probably ten times easily. I mean, it's just solid nice. wood. Sand it down. So it's nice. It I I hate veneers really, and yeah. it, oh. they dominate the and marine. If any water world. gets in them, it just destroys it. And you can't refinish it much. Yeah. I mean, you might be able to refinish it once, maybe twice, but probably not. Yeah. You know, and now modern boats they don't even put wood in there. It's just printed on particle board, and if you get a bumper scraper nick there's nothing you can do about it you, yeah. there is no finishing so i'm looking over here at this gorgeous heater you have it's going to keep you nice and toasty in the arctic i was laughing to myself because you were talking with somebody just the other day i overheard and we're overheard sitting in a, a cold boat too by the way <laughs> we're sitting in a cold boat because we don't have the heater on uh, for the noise thank you for sacrificing for the podcast well but, i um, should have that heater on yeah but. you were saying the window is essential Oh yeah, yeah, Randall, Randall, Randall Reeve. We were we were at the OCC <laughs> event the other day, and 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 uh, we all went out to drinking after the event. And Randall Reeves, who did the uh, single of uh, the figure eight single handed, yeah. which is worth checking out if you haven't checked it out. Oh, and yeah. he's a uh, West Coast guy uh, like yourself. Been on the been on your podcast, right? Yeah, yeah you guys I interviewed him three or yeah, four times when he was out there. Times, so yeah, so Randall's night. got a reflex diesel heater, which is arguably a better diesel heater than than this is. This it's, is what it's def that's a Dickinson. Okay. Now the reflex is more expensive and it has a bit of a more output. You know, it's a little more BTU. Yeah. Uh, not much, really, not much difference. And I don't, I honestly don't know if, how much. They're they're more expensive. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Well, mine has a little glass window on it, and you can actually see the fire. Right. His doesn't. And the ability to see the fire in the, the heater, uh, and this is the Antarctica model, which is the big floor model. It's not the bulkhead mounted. It sits on the floor. Right. And, yeah, it makes a huge difference. It's really nice. And at nighttime, if you get up to, like, pee or something, it's like a nightlight. 
You got this little uh-huh. fire yeah. just kind of illuminating the cabin. And, yeah, in the day, it's nice to look over Your and see the fireplace fire. in the in the boat. Yeah, I've got two of those things, one here and one up oh, forward. Nice. This is going to be a cozy boat. Normally, I would run them. It's, it's got a little cold last night. It got down to, like, 35 or something or 34. Yeah. It got colder than I thought, and I didn't really have a heater on. And my Webesto's acting up right now in the back. And um, I ran out of uh, denatured alcohol the other day which is what I used to start the, the diesel trip oh, okay. heaters. If you just try to start them with diesel, they typically don't start very well. How you start a drip pot heater is crucial to how it's going to burn, uh, generally speaking. You want to get the chamber as hot as you can before you introduce the diesel. So uh-huh. the diesel turns to like a vapor. It gets vaporized, basically, and then it burns really clean. And if you don't heat it enough, you can get a lot of carbing in there. You okay. get all these like sooty yeah. black shit in there. It's like not revving your diesel and running at low revs too much. You get all the carbine inside. Yeah, and it, it'll carb up quickly. So normally, yeah, we're we're sitting in the it's like sixty, I think, over fifty nine in here right now. But <laughs> you've got your puffer on at least there. Yeah, whatever. Um, I don't care. It's been a long winter. I mean, it, I don't even know. We are getting the spring. We are Just getting the spring. Through DC and the cherry blossoms were out. So yeah, it's sorry. It's been windy as shit the last week, but it's um. But anyway, so that's um. You're at the final push now, though. Yeah, yeah, yep. We're um, I got a month to to basically before I got to have this boat in the water, and then on the twenty eighth of May we got to sail to Greenland. So it is, um, yeah, it's kind of crazy right now, really. Um, got to do a bit more work on the floor. We did get some latches down. We did sort of get yeah. somewhere with it. Uh, getting the ceilings in place right now. I don't have many lights up there, which makes it kind of dark in here right now. So we got to get ceilings, floors. I got one mast sitting on the ground next to my boat, my main mast. The it's, This is a schooner, mm-hmm. but I'm only a schooner by one foot. <laughs> uh, my last boat was the same way. It was the, the, the main mast, the back mast, was one foot taller okay. than the forward mast. 20-year-old rigging, you know. Even sure. though it's never had a sail up, it's still – some stuff was done really poorly, too. They had running backstays connected to the spreaders, which is a horrible idea. You could rip your spreaders off with your running backs. Oh, yeah, that doesn't sound Yeah, that was weird. The big bolts that actually connect the shrouds to the mast, the upper and lower shrouds, there was a big gap maybe like a quarter inch gap where they d- basically didn't thread the, they didn't thread it enough when they made them oh. and when they put them on somebody must have realized so that the tang was actually off so the, the mast. tang was off the mast by about a quarter inch just sitting there and it was just like <laughs> so i had to take those out to a machine shop and get them threaded a little deeper and put okay. them back so a lot of stuff like that you know yeah. it, all the antennas needed oh, the to bolts be bolts didn't have threads far enough up yeah so Got the it. bolts yeah so you couldn't like you couldn't really compress the tangs onto sure. the mast they were just and it's like that's a problem waiting to happen then right it's there. Just pulling, you got the, you could have bent the bolts right down. Yeah, you would have. Yeah, you could have bent and then sheared. Yeah. The, and then you lose your shrouds, and then you lose and your mast or something. You know, I don't. It's bad. So it's just some weird shit like that was going on with the masts. The masts are not normal masts. They're not like uh, your typical aluminum's kind of oval shaped mast. These are round masts. They're custom made. That are um, not custom made necessarily in a, in a good way or a bad way. They're just is what it is real heavy wall thickness they're about 1800 pounds each and there's some good things about they weren't cut right on the bottom so when they cut them they they cut them for them to sit straight up and down like a mast typically does schooners have rake in their mast because we don't have a backstay so they put rake in so when when they rake the mast they were sitting on their back lip basically you could stick your hand uh up to your knuckles underneath the front of the mass as the mass was sitting there there's a gap big enough because it was like leaning back which means it's all resting on a couple of inches yeah yeah you got the 1800 pound mass 
It weighs, it weighs more when you put the rigging on it. You know, he probably weighs like, you know, 2,000, 2,200 wow. sitting on that. And so any kind of wave action, even wind around here, they would start shaking and the whole boat would start shaking. Oh, yeah, and so it would get windy in, your, in the wintertime and you're like trying to work on a boat or live on a boat or sleep on a boat. How apprehensive are you about you never sailed this boat. No one's ever sailed this boat. No one's ever sailed yeah, this it's boat. Yeah, never right? had so a sail. You up. can't even talk to somebody and say, how no. does she sail? No. How apprehensive about that are you? Um, you know, for being a steel boat, it is not hard chine, which is extremely rare. Uh-huh. Uh, the boat the, the, the boat was redesigned, as we said, by Bruce Roberts in the late 90s. And then the, the blueprints were sent to the Netherlands. Uh, in Holland, they have these massive factories. Uh, they can actually bend steel and give a shape like fiberglass basically without any hard chine we don't have those facilities in the states and i don't know of anybody outside of the dutch and the dutch make some of the finest steel boats on earth yeah and they've had that reputation for many years the french are making some of the finest aluminum boats right uh europe is way ahead of us with metal boats generally speaking we don't have many metal boats on the market in the states why why do you think that is I don't know. I mean, a fiberglass thing really took off. Honestly, I don't know enough about the very early days. I don't know if we pioneered it or if the English pioneered it. Is, do you think there are more high-latitude sailors there that are demanding uh, it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we do tend to go south on the East Coast, at least. Yeah. People go Caribbean, Bahamas. That's the most popular thing. Or up and down the ICW. Yeah. You know, the West Coast is different because you don't got an ICW and you got less ports and things. And, you know, it's you don't have a Caribbean. You got Baja, I guess. Exactly. People go down to Mexico. But, I mean, but in recent years, though, the metal boats, the Garcias, and all those have really started to take yeah. off. Yeah, French people. aluminum boats. And they're all designed fairly similar with the yeah. lifting keel and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the round bottom with the lifting keel and all that kind of stuff yeah um cool boats a lot of them are really cool but, but back to this boat yeah you're, so you're pretty confident it has a fairly modernish underbody for being what it is yeah. i think bruce roberts redesigning it in the late 90s helped because they kind of brought in some of the more modern uh, underbody design so i mean it's not a full keel mm-hmm Obviously, it's not bolted on because with, with metal right. boats, they're just welded right on. Yeah. It's a long keel, but it's got a long cutout forefoot before it. So it's it's basically a very big fin keel uh, with a skeg rudder. You do have a bit of V shape leading up to the keel, and then it gets pretty flat from the sides of the keel and then flatter behind the keel, which is a more modern version of that. So, yeah, I think she's going to sail well. A seven-and-a-half-foot draft. She's got a bit of a Chuck Payne keel, which means you've got like a little fin on the bottom. Mm. It's not like a shoulder draft keel will have a fin, but, but, uh, but it, you know, it's there. Mm-hmm. If you look at her sail area to displacement ratio, even though she's a 110,000-pound boat uh, fully loaded, there's about 2,200 square feet of sail area. So you got two masts that are about the same height. How tall are they? 70 and 71 is okay. the length if you pull them out and measure them. Yeah. Being since they're keel stepped, that's more or less waterline. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to be right around. I can't go under any bridges. I know that much. So it's going to be somewhere roughly around that 70, 71. And you basically have two mainsails. The most modern version of a schooner is a staysail schooner, which I love. A staysail schooner basically has a mainsail, like a Marconi style mainsail on the back, and then you got a bunch of furlers. Uh, going forward or you can uh, okay. at least have a bunch of furl. you can have a bunch yeah. of whatever you want but right. but you could theoretically have like you could have like three or four furlers depending on how you want to do it and one main and then a lot of it furls and it's pretty easy to handle woodwind is a boat in annapolis mm-hmm. they got two of them those are stay sail schooners and th- they designed them to be that from the very beginning and i think the rig is perfectly fine for that design and what it's meant to be 
So, anyways, I got two mainsails basically, yeah, uh, which are identical. And you're not going to have furling main. No, I'm not doing in main furling. I, I mean, I couldn't because these because the masts. Are, yeah, they're yeah. just big round masts. Yeah, they're right, not right, right. they're not made for any of that. And in boom furling, well, first off, it'd be expensive, and second off, I don't really like in boom furling. I used to think it was like you know the the, the greatest thing ever. Um, because you could have battens and, yeah. you know, the idea of it. But it, most in-boom furling systems, you cannot reef off the wind. you got to round the boat up into the wind every single time you reef it. And in the ocean, in a gale, it is not practical to have to round your boat up into the wind every single time. It's a to- giant pain in the ass. Yeah. You know, this is basically a variation of slab reefing with an electric halyard winch. Oh, okay. Strapped onto the mast. It's kind of a weird thing that I, I came up with here. Cool. But cool. Anderson makes a winch called an above deck, and they're a bit more expensive. You know, most electric winches have an L-shaped motor underneath, underneath deck, but yeah. that's not an option. You, how are you going to stick an L-shaped motor inside of a right, mast? Right, how especially. are you going to bolt it together? How are you going to get in there and do anything, connect yeah. wires to it or anything? So it, it sits on the winch pad itself. And the pad has the motor in it. And the pad has the motor attached yeah. to it, and the winch sits on a motor. And the motor is maybe three, four inches or something, and, you know, uh, it sticks out a little bit. But... And I have one set up on the forward mast right now because we've already done the forward mast. I've already gone through all that, added a radar, put a camera on top for ice because, you know, we're up in the Arctic. Changed antennas, changed the wires out, did a bunch of shit to it, painted it. That winch, you know, I can press a button and it'll pull you up to the top without any effort whatsoever. That's nice. I've been up to the top of that thing like 15 times. It's like, hey, you want to go to the top of the mast? I got to do something. like, all right, yeah, sure, whatever. You don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. The flip side is that thing could probably rip a mainsail in half if you're not careful. So I think what I'll do, at least initially, and we just might make this a rule we'll have to see, is people will bring the sail up about 90% under the electric winch and then we'll do the last bit because it's still manual. You can still stick a winch handle in it and work it like any other manual winch yeah. and, uh, and just do the last bit manually. So you That's don't good. hurt anything. This podcast is ostensibly about the Bay area and you have a particular San Francisco story that yeah. I wanted to get to. Uh, so, well, all right, I'm going to get into that one. Yeah. Let's we'll see get into how are we doing one. with time here. We're, all right. We're, we're about a little over half hour in. So I um, don't know how long this story is, but I know this you've been kind of, waiting to tell this story or it's kind of next in the chronology of what you've been talking about on your podcast so i thought it might work here so 2013 we went out there like i said we've spent i don't know 70 some days in the ocean mapping out all this stuff which was the second longest i've ever been in the ocean um we wanted to piggyback on that research in 2014 in the pacific ocean and the pacific garbage patch the north pacific had been mapped out well enough that there really wasn't some big section left to be mapped. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to better understand how the the dominating sort of easterly winds and currents that are just below the, the garbage patch, how is that moving plastics like a conveyor belt from this super dense region to other parts of our ocean? Got it. And we're also looking at some of the pollutants that are in the plastics, particularly in that case was nurdles. Nurdles are pre-production plastic about the size of BBs. Huh. All plastic starts off that way. So their companies make these little plastic BBs and then send it to other companies who actually excrute various plastics. So if okay. you had a plastic excruting company making shit, you'd be ordering giant, I don't know, boxes of nurdles basically and then turning that into other stuff. That is the raw resource. And that sometimes makes its way into the ocean as well. Yeah, yeah. It's gotten a lot better because it goes back to policy change as we were talking earlier. Like they have created new policies for how you can handle these nurdles uh, in the import-export and so uh, a lot less of them have spilled into the ocean. 
than it used to used to be a lot more regular. Yeah. So we do find less of them out there. But anyways, these are plastics can absorb chemicals that can be found in some of the more polluted rivers and and so on as they make their way out to sea. And so by the time the plastics get out there, they can have some of these additional carcinogens basically that they've they've absorbed uh, early on in the process. And then the fish can eat these carcinogens and get it in their system and then we eat the fish, so we end up eating our own trash and pollutants basically. But how much pollutants are really in it and what's what's really going on right that's so what you there's were studying. a um, a group of scientists out of japan uh, uh university of japan i believe it is they specifically were looking at the pollutants and the plastics so we were working with those guys so that was the idea now what happened is i was walking around the boat show in october of 2013 we had just here gotten back here in annapolis yeah. we had just got back from that big trip we did another oyster study after that trip mapped out some oyster beds in the Rappahannock but anyway so I'm sitting there and I walk around the boat show with a guy Tom Harkin who was a senator for I don't know 20 30 years yeah 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 so Tom was a sailor also built his own boat heard about my trip around the Americas we became friends and Tom Harkin was kind of like an old school democrat he got out just in time yeah uh, because things have gotten very polarized huh yeah he was in Iowa he was an Iowa guy and I used to cover the hill and I I I interacted with tom before he left he was a great guy yeah and you know the thing is that back in the day politicians used to reach across the aisle quite a bit you know yeah. what was that uh reagan and kipper who was that guy reagan and oh yeah tipper tip o'neill yeah and there yeah, was this yeah. whole story about how they were different parties but they would figure out how to work together yeah. and stuff like that so tom was of that school where you know yeah you disagree with the other side but you find a way to work with them right where now it's just it's become so tribal that nobody yeah, wants to work with anybody just do it uh, whatever so, you can to screw over the other side yeah yeah it's all obstructionist tactics basically but anyway i'm walking around with tom people recognize tom of course and he wanted to look at some day sailors okay because uh, he was thinking about buying a little day sailor so we look at a larions which are nice day sailors really pretty boats uh but they're expensive and he's like, well, I want to look at these harbors because they're kind of like an Alarion, but they don't have all the teak, yeah. and they're a bit cheaper. Now, they're still expensive, but they're, you know, you know, I don't know what they were, 80 grand for a 25-footer or something yeah. like that, or 100 grand. I mean, they still were expensive. Yeah. So we go over there, and we're talking, and the guy who owns the company recognized me and said something about, why don't you sail this Harbor 25 around the Americas? And I Just offhand kidding. Yeah, yeah, just kidding. And I said, well, you better watch what you say to me. I might take you up on that. <laughs> and so... I'm thinking about this, you know, a few days later, and I'm thinking that, you know, we we don't have a vessel on the West Coast. There's no good way to get our 42-footer, you know, what we got to go through the Northwest Passage or right. through Panama Canal. Right. We got no good way to do it. Uh, I email the guy up and say, well, hey, why don't you let me take one of these Harbor 25s across the Pacific, and we'll do some plastics research along the way, and told him this was the idea, and, the you know, the conveyor belt of the easterly trade winds and currents, and and uh, pollutants of the plastic and University of Tokyo and all this shit. And I'll prove your boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll show you. So the Harbor series was designed, I believe, by Tom Shock. W.D. Shock created the company in 1948. Okay. And um, there's a lot of shock boats that are out there. Yeah. Um, they made a variety of different uh, boats. There was a couple of different lines that they had. I don't know the entire history of it, but I, I think Tom Shock, who is the son of W.D., took it over directly. I don't know if there was a person in between them or not. I don't don't remember. But anyways, Tom Schock de- developed the Harbors. Mm-hmm. The Harbor 20 uh, has a healthy race fleet in Annapolis. Harbor 20s are, are really easy 
to to sail little race boats. Harbor 25s have a cabin, and then there was a Harbor 30 um, that was I don't know 220 grand, which they're having a hard time selling. So they Tom called them a harbor because you weren't supposed to take them out of the harbor. And I thought, well, that'd be funny to take this across the you know the Pacific Ocean. So I, I contacted him about the Harbor 25, and, and Tom Schock sold the business in 2008 during that whole banking debacle where yeah. bankers, a bunch of greedy bankers, destroyed our economy and, and basically didn't get any penalty for it. So he sold the company. This guy, Alexander, uh, bought it. So anyways, this guy get, uh, contacts me. Well, look, we're, we're thinking about coming out with a new boat called a Harbor 29. It's basically a stripped-down Harbor 30 because we're having a hard time selling these 30-footers for 220. Because okay. 220, I mean, shit, you can buy a nice Valiant 42 for 220. Yeah. You know, I yeah, mean, yeah. I know that's not a day sailor, but still. So they were trying to come up with a boat you could sell for like 160 to 170, but the interior would be very basic. You know, it's very much day sailor, and it's really a 30-foot hull. It's really a Harbor 30. It's not a 29. I mean, it's a it's a 30-foot boat. Uh, it's about a 6,500-pound boat with about 45% ballast to displacement ratio. When you say stripped down, what does the interior consist of? Well, I mean, it's a little hard to pinpoint because the, they only built one of them ever, which is the one we sailed <laughs> okay. to because the company ended up so going into the, the interior of the boat that you sailed. But, like. um, you know, well, I think the Harbor 30s had some amenities. You know, I think there was yeah. air conditioning, refrigeration. Got it. I think there was a... Uh, there was just a lot more to it. They, you know, you could cruise on them, and, yeah. and this was this was sparse, as in there's a plate. There's seating in there. Uh-huh. You know, there's sort of a galley, kind of, not really, um, and a little sink. You know, there wasn't a stove, really. We had it. We, we took one of those gimbling stoves. You, you screw, like, a one-pound propane oh, yeah, tank yeah. in the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, camping stove? Yeah, it's kind the of. Gimbals? A, yeah, it's kind of like a marine version of a camping right, stove. Right. You know, it's got a single burner. You screw a propane tank, a little one-pounder into the bottom of it. Yeah. That was our stove, you know, okay. for, for that entire trip. And um, so, yeah, it was. And, you know, because we had to build it, it uh, which we'll get into in a second, it was yeah. very, very, very sparse. So this, they said, okay, we've got this new boat. So, yeah, he says, he says, all right, so um, this could be a good way for us to, like, to get, you know, some whatever PR and stuff on this Harbor 29. Yeah. And then, you know, you look at the specs and uh, with a, you know, it's a technically a 30-foot boat, but it's a 6,500-pound boat. It's relatively light, but you got six-foot-three draft, which is deep. You got a 45% ballast to displacement ratio, and it's mostly in a bulb because it's a very modern underbody. Okay. So you got a lot of weight, way down low. Um, you know, the boat's going to sail well. It's, you know, it's going to be, um, and my thought was it's going to sit really well on a parachute sea anchor. If I were to get into really heavy weather, that boat is too lightweight. It's, it's a day sailor. Basically it's not built for dealing with heavy weather in any kind of active manner. A parachute sea anchor goes off the bow. A drill goes off the stern. I had both of them, but, uh, when you have that much weight that far down, if the boat does roll upside down, it's not going to be upside down very long. That's a very big lever arm. So I felt pretty confident that using a parachute sea anchor, we could probably get through some some if we get into some bad heavy weather. Easterly trade winds are not typically bad heavy weather areas, anyways. You know whether it's uh, Caribbean, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Canaries through the Caribbean, which mm-hmm. is the Atlantic one that most people do, or uh, across the Pacific. Easterly trade winds at the right time of year when it's right. not hurricane right. season and not typhoons. 
are pretty benign. Sure. You know, that's the whole point of them. Although you want to be prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and you want to think about that ahead of time. Did so, you, being a day sailor, being a harbor boat, did it have a Dodger? Did it have any way to get out of the water? No, it had no Dodger, no Bimini. Yeah. It never had a Dodger or Bimini. We did it without a Dodger or and Bimini. how dry or wet was she? Oh, wet as shit if you want yeah. for I mean, if the boat, you know, my Pearson 323 didn't have a Dodger or Bimini either, you know. I mean, I, I did a lot of sailing. Hell, going around the Americas, I didn't have a Bimini, and I, this little Dodger that lasted like two seconds, and it was 30 years old, and it fell apart. So I went around Cape Horn with a freaking uh, paintball mask on because <laughs> that's – and you can get a paintball that's mask for have. like 20 bucks, but I look like a heavy weather ninja, you know? I, I love it. Yeah, I, that's what I, for a long, I did the same with a Pearson. I got this tropical storm hit me once, and I just was like, all right, guess I got to put on a paintball mask. But Because for people who haven't been in a storm with driving rain, I mean, you have a great description of it, of what it yeah, feels yeah. like. Yeah, well, if you imagine driving down the highway at like 60 miles an hour and it's raining hard, now roll the window down and stick your head out the window and try to drive your car. Right. You know, you're not gonna be able to see shit and it's gonna, and it might hurt. So yeah, it's the same way. So, and I was going to get a motorcycle helmet, which you, you know, people do on like the bigger race boats. Right. Uh, I got a giant head. First off, it's hard to find one big enough to fit my head and it's more expensive. Sure. So a paintball mask is like 20, 30 bucks. And it has a lot of holes in a paintball mask, mm-hmm. little, little Ventilation. holes. It's lets the air through. So yeah. it doesn't rip it off your face when you turn your head around backwards to the wind. And it has goggles and all the rest. So, yeah, it, it, it's, they're great for heavy weather, actually, and they're relatively cheap. I, That's awesome. That you got that tip here. Soon everybody's yeah, going to be wearing paintball masks out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it works great. Um, so back to this boat. So, yeah, so we're like, all right, okay, we're going to do this expedition on this, uh, this Harbor 29. Um, we had to start fundraising. We wrote, I think, six grants. We only got one little grant for six grand. Um, I ended up having to put a few thousand dollars of my own money into it just mm. to fill gaps. We were able to get Monitor to give us a, um, a loaner, wind vane. The deal was we had to bring it back, and we did. We brought it back, and they sold it, and some guy was happy to buy it, you know. Um, That's Mike. who uh, Mike Sheck, yeah, there. yeah. He's Monitors great. are great. Monitor yeah. wind vanes. Hans was the guy who created it. Uh, right. Hans Bakewell, right. I think is his last name. Um, Scandinavian guy, and then uh, Mike got the company some years ago, and they, they're just great. We can't, you know, as far as servo pendulum wind vanes go, they, I think they're the best servo pendulum wind vane on the market. And then you could say Hydrovane is probably the best auxiliary rudder style between those two. Those are the guys that kind of battle each other. Yeah. A lot of other wind vanes out there, and there's and there and a lot of them are good and work fine. But I would personally pick one or the other. Um, so, anyways. Was this boat already on the West Coast, or did they have to get it out there for you? This boat didn't exist, basically, Okay. at that time. There, there was no boat. Hey, but, yeah, the company is on the West Coast. Oh, so they were building them out there. WD Shock had a factory in the Inland Empire, which I had never heard of before that. The Inland Empire is inland of L.A., Yeah. So and it's hot as balls in oh, fucking yeah. inland. And this is getting into summer, so we'll get into that in a second. You basically got to bring everything to cross the Pacific. All the gear and equipment, they're not going to provide us with any of it. They're going to give you the boat. So anything from an EPIRB to a life raft to a wind vane to gear, equipment, satellite communications, chart plotters, you name it. Yeah, you're getting an empty boat. You're getting an empty day sailor, and you got to come with all your shit. Yeah. And then you got to get it all back from Japan somehow, too, which is— Because you're leaving the boat there. Because you're leaving the boat there. They had a broker, like a dealer, basically, in Japan. And they didn't have anybody, like, signed up to buy the boat— they just figured that if they got the boat over to Japan, that this guy would be able to sell it somehow, this yacht broker guy who is like their Japan guy. Okay. 
So that was it wasn't a delivery in a sense where like somebody owned the boat and were delivering it to them. They had they were taking a risk that you know they had to get it over there and then try to find somebody to buy it once it got there, which they did, and it wasn't much of a problem. But it wasn't unknown. So, anyways, we show up on April first, April Fool's Day. We're supposed to leave on April like twelfth or thirteenth. I think it was the thirteenth. Okay. The idea is you got typhoons, and I don't care what type of parachute sea anchor you got, you'll probably die in a typhoon. Yeah. You know that's fine for like heavy weather, but typhoons are a little bit more than just heavy weather. So that was a big concern. Got to get across the Pacific. Pacific is a big giant ocean, and Japan is a long way away. So, yeah, there was a bit of a time crunch. So how do you get out there with all your crap that you're bringing out? You spend a lot of money with extra baggage. I mean, okay. you can imagine. It's like, so what is it, 30 out. bucks for your first bag, yeah. 60 for your second? We flew out there with, you know, tons of shit, you know, big yeah. bags. And we mailed as much stuff as we could to the factory. And, you know, it was expensive. And we didn't have shit for money. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah. So, yeah, so we show up there. Uh, Alexander picks us up in some, like, Hawaiian T-shirt-looking thing, gives us Hawaiian shirts. I'm thinking, I'm never going to wear that shit. <laughs> Takes us to the factory. You know, we drive over there. You know, he's like, oh, we've had some delays. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And uh, we get there, and he shows me the boat, and it's an empty hull, and it's still in the mold. They hadn't even got it out of the mold yet. Oh, shit. It had no bulkheads. It had no wiring, no plumbing, no engine, no deck, no keel, no rudder. No masts, no sails, no cushions, no shit. It was an empty hall sitting in the mold. And this is the first you heard of this delay? Yeah, this is the first I heard of this delay. And, and then there's a difference between delay and, like, we barely started building the boat. Yeah. I mean, that's a big fucking difference. I don't know. I, I felt it like I had painted myself a little bit into a corner. I had, you know, told a lot of people we're doing this expedition. We had different scientists lined up. We had gotten this equipment, borrowed this, uh, this some of the, the trawl. We had raised some money. We did get that one $6,000 grant from a Save Our Seas Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I couldn't really back out. I pulled Nicole aside and said, look, this is, this is really not the way you do this. This is a bit crazy. If you want to just meet me in Japan, like I completely understand. Like I was trying to give her a way out. Yeah. I'll just do it single-handed, yeah. which you know, I did a lot of single-handed sailing before that. It wouldn't have been a big deal. And of course she said, no, 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 I'm going to do this and yada, yada. So it was like, all right, well, time to roll your sleeves up and get to work. I basically became the biggest volunteer in history for WD Shock, and I was just putting in like 14, 16-hour days every single day trying to build this boat. It's supposed to take 12 weeks to build it. We built it in 23 days. The guys I was working with didn't really speak English, and I don't really speak Spanish, but it did pick up over time. Like the first few days, I was like putting bulkheads in and working on the boat. It's Building a fiberglass boat is a lot of grinding and fitting. And I made the mistake because all the, all the Mexican dudes, they didn't wear Tyvek suits because oh. they're used to that fiberglass. Oh. And so I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to be the white guy in a right. Tyvek suit, you know. So I would get fiberglass all over me, and then you get like – it's like poison ivy, basically. Yeah. And then I'd have to go home and take cold showers because the cold apparently helps to get it out of your pores or something. So that was – and then day after day of that. And eventually I did start wearing Tyvek suits, but by that point the damage had been done, basically. Um, oh, man. And then, but slowly, more and more people got involved, more and more workers got involved, and the project started speeding up a bit, I guess. But we still slapped the boat together. I mean, there's, right. it's not the right way to do it at all. Yeah, it was, it was a giant shit show. It was hot as fuck. It was like 100 degrees in that factory or 110. There's no air conditioning in this thing. Nicole would be spent most of her time in this little one air-conditioned room doing a lot of, like, background stuff there's a lot of like media stuff and emails and all that shit that needs to sure, happen and, yeah. I, and i would just work on the boat with these guys all day 
we ended up putting the boat in the there's a boat show that strictly sail i don't know where you guys you guys have it at alameda now yeah it's in richmond it used now, to yeah. be in oakland so this was right. the last yep. year yep. that it was in oakland okay, was the I year i was that. there yeah. and uh and i did some talks and the boat was at the show and we were still uh we were installing a monitor wind vane we were still working on a boat like while i was in while i was in the show, while I was in the show we're like <laughs> literally installing the wind vane we're like oh we'll make a demonstration out of it or something and, and we're like installing blocks on the deck like i am building this probably boat. the most instructive thing at the show <laughs> yeah we literally were building the boat in the slip that the boat was in during the boat show while people are walking by i'm like drilling holes in the deck it was a madhouse so yeah so we did some talks yada yada and then we uh the boat goes back down to um, – where did we leave from? I guess we left from San Francisco. So, yeah, it stayed there, and uh, we left out uh, under the bridge, caught a big wave. I and think this I is t- April what? what? It was still in April? Yeah, uh, I guess this is April 23rd or 4th at this point. You built it took a 20- boat in a month. <laughs> yeah, in less than a month, including a boat show. And, uh, and then, you know, we had to go out to sea. Now, I designed aspects of this boat around St. Brendan, the boat I took around the Americas. Uh-huh. In many ways, it was like a turbo version of that boat. Which was an Alban Vega. It was an Alban Vega. Vega yeah. But it's a very different boat. But the similarities, I kept. I had the monitor wind vane on both of them. They both uh-huh. had a tiller that, with a monitor wind vane. They both had single-line reefing. I, can, I, I set it up exactly the same. So my halyard was on the same side. When I do single-line reefing, and I, I think it's best uh, to have – a halyard on one side of your companion way and your reef lines on the other side of your companion way. So your halyard and your reef lines are separated and they have their own winches and they have their own rope clutches. Okay. And oftentimes as a yacht broker, I would go around on boats and I would see that the halyard was on the same side as the reef lines. Is that so you're not taking it off the, yeah, the drum so, and putting the other one on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This way the halyard has its own winch and its own rope clutch all yeah. to itself. And the three reef lines have their own rope clutches and right. their own winch. And it just makes it a lot easier because yeah. then you're not you know, having to share a winch, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was – and it was identical to St. Brennan. The okay. same place and the same side and the same everything. We lived off freeze-dried food, just like I did going around the Americas. We lived off a manual water maker. We had to pump a water maker. We probably pumped it about 80,000 times. Yeah. Um, but going around the Americas, I pumped it over 406,000 times. So what does it matter? Oh, I've done but, a lo- but going around the Americas, you were by yourself. This time you had Nicole with you. Was yeah, that yeah. a huge difference? Or was, did yeah, she I mean, just it's adapt a, that, to that? No, it's another body as far as like food and water goes. Yeah. You know, you got another person on board that, that – um, so you but you're pump pretty, twice as I mean, much water. I, I, I think I'm. I don't think I've ever met Nicole, but you, I know, just from listening to you talk, like, all right, this is shitty, but I can deal with it. You know, you can take a lot. You've put yourself through a right. lot, and is she up there with yeah, you? Yeah, in yeah, yeah. She did pumping water to get a sip. Yeah, yeah, she was all right with it. I don't remember. I'm, I probably pumped it a bit more than she did, but I know she definitely pumped it. Yeah. No, she didn't really. She didn't really complain much about it. Uh, well, I mean, if she did, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have made it through the first expedition. We're right, out there for 73 right. days, also l- eating freeze-dried food, although we didn't pump the manual water maker on that one. I was able to get rain from, uh, uh rainwater a little bit. We yeah. survived off some rainwater, but so yeah, we leave out on the expedition out of San Francisco. There, there was a gale coming, which I knew there was a gale coming. I thought that it would be a good test for the boat because if something broke, it would be somewhat. It would be oh. close enough to the coast that I, I only had like 13 gallons of diesel or something in this yeah. little tiny engine, yeah. but it was enough that I could turn around and motor back okay. if like we lose the mast or something. 
That's I, interesting thinking because uh, most people say, oh, there's a gale coming. I'm going to wait till it's gone. But you said if, if something happens, I want it to happen close to shore so we can – yeah, it's because this is the sea trial. I yeah, mean, the, yeah. our, we never had a sea trial on the boat. I mean, the sea trial was the Trans-Pacific. That's the first time the boat ever sailed anywhere. <laughs> and you don't know what the hell's going to happen. So you might as yeah. well take it out and beat its ass in the very beginning mm-hmm. to try to break something. And, right. and so we did. And we had a big wave when we went under the Golden Gate Bridge. It gets pretty nasty there. Especially if the wind's against the current there. Yeah, and I honestly don't remember if the wind was or wasn't, but it was nasty. And we had a wave go over the whole entire boat and land on me and Nicole in the cockpit which was the worst wave we took on the entire Trans-Pacific was right there at the freaking Golden Gate, you know, right wow. after the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, but the wind was picking up. I know that much. And um, and the gale came that night. Nicole got a little bit seasick, but it, that happens the first couple of days, and it yeah. wears off, and she was fine. And we were flying along. I think the galley jumped about a half an inch at one point right in front of me. It was like breaking in a, a brand-new pair of shoes or something. And <laughs> you mean the whole thing just... The whole thing just shifted. You know, wow. about a half an inch wow. at one point. The boat was getting pretty, I mean, it was getting knocked around pretty good. And it was a it was a pretty good gale. But, you know, whatever, we made it through. And, um, and you know, the boat seemed fine. We did lose all of our water in that gale. Uh, we had a water bladder. I'm not a big fan of water bladders, though I'm about to put a couple in this boat because I don't learn my lesson. Uh, and I told Alexander, the guy who owns the company, that um, – you know, I hate these things. Da 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 da. Oh no, it'll be fine. Because it'll be they fine. Can puncture. Yeah, they 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 can burst on you. Yeah. Um, what the problem with the water bladder? It, typically, they work well if you go from a hundred percent to zero percent. What where they don't work well is if as you slowly drink the water out of the water bladder, it starts sloshing around, and as it sloshes around, it weakens the seams and then it fails. But if you can keep it a hundred percent full to a hundred percent empty, you just use it as a storage, like I'm going to do on this boat. Then you're just dumping the water into your bigger okay. tanks, and then you don't have that. You don't have like baffles in them to, to slow the water right. around. Right. That didn't happen on this one. I don't know what in the hell happened. All I know is we lost all of our water. The thing completely failed. There goes all of our drinking water. And the first day, you know, the first 24 hours of this Trans-Pacific, we lose all of our water. But we had the manual water maker. So that's I, why you were pumping. Yep. And I had a. We, I figured we would anyways. Eventually, I figured that water would just get us through the first while. It was probably only like a thirty-gallon tank, right. anyways. Again, it's a day sailor. Yeah, it didn't have much. So, um, so it was like, all right, whatever. And I had a backup membrane for it and all that. You always should bring a backup membrane for your water maker. Yeah. And you know, the trip went on fairly well. You you come out of San Francisco. We dropped down, sort of through the corner of the uh, Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh, you know, we sailed out and then down. Now, one of the things about the patches is they're usually under the high-pressure systems, right? Yeah, they're associated with the high-pressure systems. So, they're, they're, yeah, they're in and around them, basically. So are you, if you're sailing to the garbage patch, you're sailing through not a whole lot of wind. Yeah, yeah. Especially that the epicenters of these things are often associated, like doldrums, basically, yeah, yeah. which we had in 2013 when our engine broke and we got stuck. When It took us 24 days to do 500 miles at the end. Because we had a broken engine, it was after that forty-eight foot swan right. situation, trying to get into Bermuda, and it took forever. And we'd just be becalmed for days and days, mm. just floating around, going nowhere. So in this case, we were cutting through the corners. We had to get okay. into a garbage patch, so we were there, and then drop south of it to to monitor the the plastics, and drop back north, back into it on the other side, to get an idea. So you go from density region to trade wind back to density region to really get an idea of how much of it is coming out of that that density. It wasn't that bad, though. You know, it's a pretty nice sail going from San Francisco to the Hawaii area. 
Uh, we didn't stop in Hawaii, partially because I still had this mindset that we'd prove that how serious we are by not stopping on land. It was the same thing in 2013. We were within a day and a half of the Azores. We could easily have stopped, and we didn't because I thought it would like prove that we were so dedicated. It was like, all our research is in the ocean. It's not on land, and I'm not researching pina coladas. It was stupid because, in the end, nobody gave a shit. Right. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know, We could have stopped, and it would have been whatever. It wouldn't have made any difference to anybody. But my bigger fear still was typhoons. We were behind schedule a little bit, okay. you know, because we were about 10 days behind yeah, schedule. That makes more sense. Yeah, and it's like, all right, we can't stop in Hawaii. So we did sail about within like 50 miles or 80 miles of Hawaii. And how's the boat doing at this point? I mean, you're in the trades. I think the only problem we had at this point was that one of the shrouds was loose up high. Mm. Uh, I got this thing. Um, it was a random piece of sponsorship, ATN Mass Climber. Uh-huh. Yeah, so an ATN guy was there, and the mass climber is a it's kind of like a bosun's chair that's integrated with climbing equipment. It's a really neat concept. It allows you to climb up a mast without having to be hoisted up or without having to actually physically like grab the mast and, and go up, yeah. which can be quite difficult. If you have a painted mast, you got to be a little careful because the climbing gear can scratch the paint a oh, little yeah. bit. Yeah. But I mean, it's a very small price to pay to being able to fix something in the middle of the ocean, especially in an emergency. So I think the ATN Mass Climber is a great piece of uh, gear. But anyways, I, I just randomly, this guy just ran, I randomly gave it to me. I didn't even ask him. You know, I was just talking to him. He's like, hey, take a Mass Climber. I'm like, all right, sure. I was able to get up there. The problem with tightening a, this upper uh, shroud, you got to use two hands. You know, you're... One, you know, you got to grab a turnbuckle and you got to grab the, the wire itself right. and with two different tools and two different hands. And then you're up there. This mast was, I think it was like 55 feet tall or 50 feet off the water because it's a day sailor at a really tall rig. Okay. And so you're like way up there and you have to like push off the mast, fly out and grab the end of the spreader where the, you know, where the shroud connects. Uh-huh. And then with two tools, you can't you hold on to anything. You're like holding on to your tools that are trying to turn this thing. So that was interesting. That was the first of many crazy situations involving the rig, which we'll get into in a minute. But yeah, it was it was really good. I couldn't have done it without that mass climber. And uh, but it was really weird and sketchy to yeah. be like to doing. I mean, you're like kind of in a Superman position, wow. trying to tune this rig, you know, under sail in the middle of the Pacific, sort of thing. With all the movement magnified because they're up there 50 feet yeah as you get further north the movement gets worse um and then dropping the sails wouldn't have made it any better because now the boat's gonna get flopping all over you're better off well i think what we did was we brought the jib in we just kept the main up and slowed the boat down and let the main pin the boat over yeah and then and then go from there so yeah i mean for the most part things were going well outside of that little hiccup we were collecting our samples and doing our trawls and going through i had a, a semi single-handed watch schedule we would basically sleep at night with an ais alarm and i would wake up a lot just like single-handing i'd be getting up every like 30 to 45 minutes i'd get up and look around i think it was just an easier way to do it trying to do two people with four on four off for an entire trans-pacific and i know some people would would not want to do it that way but you know when you come from a background of single-handing which at that point i very much had spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days alone in the ocean it just made sense to do it that way yeah so it was good though it was nice everything was is was working well for the most part I'm trying to remember exactly when things started going awry i guess it would have been about maybe day 40 or 45 or something like that you know we had some other little incidents happen a shark almost ate our trawl at one point yeah oceanic white tip came very close to eating our trawl uh that would have been the end of that one yeah 
Nicole at one point went to scoop a piece of plastic out of the ocean and caught a fish, probably like a 10-pound fish, like on accident with a net. Like, I've never seen anybody in my life accidentally catch a fish with a net. Yeah, I guess the fish was hiding under the plastic, and we didn't see it. And so we ate, we ate the fish, you know? I don't know what the hell it was. I have no idea. It was some, like, open ocean, weird-looking fish. It's an unlucky fish. Yeah, it was, it was really crazy. So little things like that happened, you know. Sometime around day 45 or so, Nicole said, hey, you need to come take a look at this. And so I went in the boat, looked up, and the deck was starting to crack just forward of the mast. Oh, shit. And what happened was that in the process of building this boat, because we were doing it just so quickly and whatnot, I think the compression post was installed a little too far aft. It wasn't directly under the mast. It was after the mast, like mm-hmm. a couple of feet aft. Mm-hmm. And that was the nature of how we built it. I mean, when they were loading the boat onto the truck to ship it to the boat show, they were literally installing the rudder as they were lowering the boat. Yeah. So the, it was just total madhouse. Everything was rushed. Everything was crazy rushed. You know, and I yeah. keep telling Nicole, like, this is not the way we should be doing this, but I don't have a choice. But you can you can back out if you want, but I've got to do this because I'm, I'm a man of my word. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I know we're going to be running out of trade winds soon, and we're going to have to beat our way back up north uh, north and, and west, I guess, to get to Japan. Then we're going to have a lot more mass pumping. We did have running backstays on this, even though it wasn't a cutter. Okay. I had a running back. Actually, I had dual running backstays because the mass was so goddamn flimsy. Uh-huh. It was so tall and thin and that I had two sets of running backs put on either side that came together to one block and tackle on okay. either side. It was like, but yeah. they connected at two different points on the mast. Wow. And again, this isn't a cutter rig. This is a sloop. But I needed something to keep that mast from pumping. And even with dual running backs, there was a little hatch that was up forward, kind of like in a V-berth area. It was mm-hmm. just forward of the mast. And you could sit there and look up this hatch, and you could see the mast pumping at least a foot, oh, even gosh. with dual running backs on it. It would still, like, below the running backs, it would still pump. Like, I needed, like, triple running backs on the damn thing. <laughs> What happened is the leading edge of the mast was pushing down into the deck, even with the running backs and all that, and it started cracking the deck. And so you'd stand underneath of the the mast, and the the deck above your head, it looked like somebody's chest if they were breathing really heavily. So you can see that every few seconds, the whole ceiling would come down, or I guess technically it's called a deck head, but whatever. You get get what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Your shit is flexing above your head. Right. You're like, well, that's sketchy, and then it's cracking. And to the point where if it rains, some water can come in. We had a couple of spinnaker poles I got from WD Shock to use to pull out the uh, trawl for doing the research. You got okay. to put this trawl in clean water so you don't drag it behind your boat because okay. the wake of your boat is going to move the plastics out of the way. You're not going to get a good sample. So we had a couple of spinnaker poles. We didn't have a spinnaker, but we had a couple of poles for that purpose. One of them came off of a massive... 50-some-foot boat. One of them was a pretty goddamn big spinnaker pole. So I took that spinnaker pole, I chopped it down to the size of a compression post. Okay. And I basically built a second compression post forward of the one, you know, directly under the mast. Forward pounded of the one it in so that it pound, would pull yeah, up. Yeah, pounded it in, and then kind of screwed some blocks around the base and on, in the top and used some resin and fiberglass. And, and we have it on the website somewhere. Uh, oceanresearchproject.org if you look in the blogs it's buried in there is all the blogs from it and pictures of me building this oh, thing and all the rest look at that now this wasn't a because it's aluminum and it's you know it wasn't a compression post it was more like a spring and you could actually see the 
so-called new compression posts right. actually kind of move in a little bit. Yeah. It, but it was taking a lot of the load. Give it some support. Yeah, it was basically like adding a giant spring under it. So it took a lot of the load away from the deck and, and okay. more or less solved that problem. And it took, I don't know, a day or something to make it. Right after that, we wanted to change our sail out. We had two jibs. One was a big Jenny and one was like a, a working jib, you know, like a 100 percenter. I dropped the big Jenny and put up the, the and the reason is we're going to have to start doing windward work soon. And you, it's hard to go to windward with a big floppy ass Jenny, but they're good for trade winds. So I, I pull the sail down. We try to get the next sail back up and we can't get it up. The swivel is getting caught on something on the furler. Shit. Well, we built that furler. I did not build it. Uh, a guy from WD shock built it. I was busy doing something else, but he built it in the parking lot of the Alameda Marina at like 10 o'clock at night, and he did not put any Loctite on any of the screws that hold the foils together. And so the screws start falling out, and we didn't see it when it first happened. Then the connectors that connect the foils slide down into the inside of the foils, so they just come come completely disconnected. And you can't get a jib up or down anymore. And we had like, I don't know, 1,500 miles or 1,800 miles to get to Japan still. You know, we got like 5,000, but we still had a long way to go. What are you going to do with no, just a mainsail? We're going to yeah. sail the last like 1,500 miles into the wind, and we're going to go like two knots the whole time? And WD Shock, we, I put a blog out about it. I, we did have to edit it a bit. We didn't have to. I did just be nice. Yeah. They were freaking the fuck out because I'm basically saying this boat's falling apart, but you're being nice about it, but the boat was. Right. It wasn't the boat's fault. It was just constructed too quickly. Right. You know, it was yeah. just the nature of just throwing a boat together in that timeline and that chaos, and that's what's going to happen. You know, It's sort of like I was telling Nicole, like, this is just not the right way to do this, but I don't have a choice. I have to do it because I said I would. Yeah, I went. I thought at first I could take the furler down and and re, you know do some work on the deck. It had a T-ball fitting up there at the top, which uh-huh. is a good way to do it. I mean, that's how I'm doing the redoing the running backs on my boat. Mm-hmm. I'm taking them off the spreaders, like I said earlier, and doing T-ball fittings. But there is no way in hell you're going to get it off in the ocean. So I had to fix the furler in place. So I would climb up the mast. It was another weird shit show. You climb up the mast under sail in the middle of the Pacific with that mast climber. Then you push off the mast as hard as you can and try to swing out forward and grab onto the furler in midair. And then you're like holding onto the furler, trying to inspect the problem while your legs and body are like dangling weird sideways. Yeah, it's like some aerial acrobatical Cirque Soleil shit, basically, (laughs) in the middle of the ocean. And so I look at it, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I can see that the foils have come apart. I can see that the sliders have slid down. There was one place in particular that was bad. I was able to get some of the other screws screwed, you know, tightened some screws. And there was somewhere like three out of four missing or something. But, you know, and I had a little bit of goop. I'd back a screw up, put some goop on it if there was an extra screw holding it in place. Like, how the hell are we going to fix this damn thing? So we had some, you know, because of freeze-dried food, we had some tin cans or whatever, aluminum cans. I guess they're aluminum cans, I guess. We cut a piece of the aluminum out and bent it to be the shape of the furler. Now, you can't wrap something around a furler because you have to put the sail up and down it. The foil has to remain unimpeded. Right. But you got, like, you know, the sides and the front of the foil that you can try to wrap something around. So we basically cut this piece of metal, bent it to the shape of that furler. I put a bunch of 5200 on the on the metal. I know it's not going to hold immediately, but it, it would help. And then I took some cotton. We tried with with proper fiberglass at first. I don't remember what happened exactly, but for some reason I ended up using like a shirt or a rag or something, mm-hmm. and I cut it down to size and I soaked it in resin and epoxy. Okay. So the idea is to climb up the mast with this this 
bent piece of metal covered in 5200, swing out, do another acrobatical thing, and put it over the, you know, it's like a, a coupler, basically, over those two foils. Got it. Okay, so you're trying to hold the two pieces, one slid down, two pieces of foils together. Well, the part that slid down is the inside part. Okay. That's the connector. If you ever build a furler, there's... You even get in there. You can't. You're fucked. That thing you can never get out. So you'll never be able to get the connector back up to actually keep the two foils together. It's There's no way to get it out. So at, you're trying now to connect it from the outside. Now, yeah. Instead of it being got connected it. from the okay. inside, you're connecting it from the outside. But you can't wrap something around it. Because the sail's got to go through the, the slot. Because the sail's got to go through the slot. So you got like... You got a good, you know, whatever. You got the sides in the front. The, the sails, the foil is not going to be there. Got it. So that's why you have a, it's like a, yeah, like a C-shaped piece of metal. You build it kind of in that, to cup, right. you know, that, that, those three sides that don't have a foil. That's, and then you yeah. put a bunch of 5200 on it and hoping that will kind of help keep it in place. And then, of course, eventually it will harden, but that yeah. takes days to harden. And since it takes days to harden. I need something else that's going to be a lot quicker. So, you know, we, we ended up getting some cotton. For, I don't remember why it was cotton, but we ended up getting cotton and covering it with, with epoxy yeah. to, to make a more quick, you know, something until the 5200 cures, you know, just yeah. to hold it hold it in place there. Trying to, like, swing out with, like, one hand with this metal thing in it and covered in 5200. Of course, you're getting – Which gets everywhere Which anyway. gets everywhere, yeah. So you're covered in 5200 and – and you're grabbing this thing, and you're the first two or three times you swing out, you might not be able to get to the furler. You know, you just end up swinging back and hitting the mast, and you push off harder, you know, and, and you get, get the balls to keep Then you push out as hard as you can with one hand to grab it and one hand with this thing in it. But I got there, and, I, you know, I grabbed it, the foil with one hand. It would have been great if we were making videos of this shit, but back then nobody – there wasn't really YouTube videos to be – you know, it wasn't about that shit back then really. But it would have made for a hell of a. We got a lot of views. I'll tell you, the situation was crazy. <laughs> so we got that on, and then I was able to to get the epoxy, get that on. Uh, we had to wait a little bit for the epoxy to cure before we get a sail, and then we we got the sail up. Wow. <laughs> Funny thing is, when we got to Japan, that little band aid had basically come off again. Just mm-hmm. started to, and the sail started to rip there from the foil starting to separate yeah. again. Okay. And so there was probably like a two or three inch rip there. It was really recent. That wouldn't have made it much longer. We would have had to, if we had another thousand miles to go. We we would have had to figure something else out or do something else again or whatever it but is. It got, your fix got you there though. Yeah, it was freaking hot by this time of year. It was hot as shit in the boat. It was like I don't know, hundred degrees probably, and I'm getting like a heat rash and all the wrong places and all that kind of stuff. We came up, made this little air conditioner. We took like a trash bag and uh, made a scoop out of the trash bag. And we had this big tube. It was like a like a giant chart tube uh-huh. that we connected to the bottom of the trash bag and stuck the tube inside the boat through the companionway. So it like you know it's like a big wind scoop that funneled it down a tube. And now nice. I'd sit at the bottom of this tube and just let the air blow on me inside the boat. Uh-huh. And then water was because it's a wet boat and we're going into the wind now. So water was constantly coming over the boat. So I had to make like a drain in the bottom of the tube. Uh-huh. But what how that started. It was actually Nicole's idea. It was a great idea. I spent two days basically tied to my mast. It was so hot inside, and I was so uncomfortable. Even though we were beating into about 25 knots of wind, which is going to create a lot of spray, I needed to cool down. Yeah. So I would go up to the mast with a harness on, and I'd basically tie myself to the mast. I'd stand there for hours, and the waves would just crash right on me, constantly getting hit by waves. But it felt like relieving because inside the boat was just so hot. At, you know, at that time of year, at that latitude, 
Uh-huh. And then Nicole was like, well, maybe we should do this. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and it worked well. And so, you know, and so I would just. So you don't have to go tie yourself to the mask. So I had to tie myself to the mask. It hit in the face with waves every five seconds. But and I just sat there with that thing blowing on me for days. And it's about, about day 55 or so. It did start getting a bit long on that particular trip. I remember everything was fine until about then. I mean, not because the boat was falling apart or whatever else. But we had one big weird system come maybe 500 miles from Japan. Really weird. Blue probably 50 or 60 knots at least. We ended up going backwards for half a day. We couldn't do anything about it. It was weird. It wasn't forecasted. Huh. It wasn't a, I don't know what the hell it was. It wasn't a gale, but it seemed a bit much to be a squall. And the clouds were really weird, really low and just ominous. And I don't, I, some clouds, I mean, it's hard to explain, but I've never really seen anything like it. And I've spent hundreds and hundreds of days at sea previous to this. So it was some really weird looking low clouds. And the wind picked up and blew probably 50 or 60. We didn't have an anemometer or any wind. We didn't have much instruments on the boat, you know, a little chart plotter and a, and a depth sounder. But anyways, it was blowing hard enough that under bare poles, we were like burying the rail, basically. You know, the boat was heeled way the hell over. Like I said, it wasn't forecasted, so it wasn't like we we're going to put out a parachute sea anchor. It yeah. just happened out of nowhere. Wow. And we went backwards for half a day. But whatever, it passed. That's I, frustrating when it, the, the trip's getting long already and you're ready to be there. Yeah, exactly. And the boat's sort of falling apart and all the rest. Yeah. And now it's like, damn, now we're going backwards. backwards. We're heading back towards the States at like seven knots or eight knots under bear poles, heeled <laughs> way over, looking at each other like, I have no idea when this is going to end or what the hell this even is because this is not a forecasted situation and it's a really weird situation. But anyways, it goes away. We had a tropical storm typhoon go north of us. It's starting to be like, all right, we need to get our ass to Japan. Yeah. Um, and it was far enough north. We got 20. We did get not wind from it. I mean, it wasn't so far. It was f- close enough to affect us. We got about 25 knots. We're starting to get, you know, named storms close enough to, for us to feel it. And the boat ain't going to take it. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. Japan has this thing called the Kuroshio or Kyoshio Current, Kuroshio Current, something mm-hmm. along those lines. It's like the Gulf Stream. Okay. It's on the south coast. It moves fast, maybe three knots. If you have wind opposing the current, it's like a hatteras situation off the Gulf Stream. Very yeah. dangerous. There was a gale forecasted. was supposed to blow against the current. So now we're racing, basically, to try to get through this current, which is just off the south coast. And, to, and we didn't know for the last couple of days if we were going to make it in or have to heave to or what the hell is going to happen. So we were sailing as hard as we could to try to beat this uh, uh, gale. And, of course, there was another typhoon looming that was heading right towards Japan that was also looking like it was going to run us over if we didn't get our asses in there. And it was a bad typhoon, you know, a serious one. We do just barely get through. Coming into Yokohama, Japan, I've never seen anything like it. We came in at night and... Day, what day is it? How far? How long has the passage been? Oh, uh, I think this is day 63 or okay. 64 or something in the 60s. Wow. So you're it, coming into Yokohama. So we've been in at sea for 60-some days, yeah. living off of freeze-dried food, pumping a manual water maker. The boat's been falling apart. We got all of our science done. We were successful with all of our samples, but, you know, wow. and sharks trying to eat our thing, and there's all sorts of shit happening. And so we get in. I've never seen this many freighters in my life in one area. Huh. I mean, talking, I have a picture on actually on the website of an AIS shot with probably like 50 fucking AIS signals, and we're right in the middle of all of it. Oh, God. And as the sun came up and we're coming in there, you could start to see all the freighters around you. Like, and I mean, you could see the lights, but you could really see them. And it was like being a mouse in the middle of a stampede. That's what it felt like. They were freighters. I mean, they were close to each other. The freighters were like, it was like if you can imagine a stampede of freighters, and you're on a little 29 foot boat. 
or 30 foot or whatever you want to call it in the middle of this freighter stampede. It was just nuts. But then none of them hit us, you know. They just kind of passed around us the best they could. You didn't have AIS, I'm assuming. No, we had it on that one. That's why I say I got a picture. Oh, oh you got a picture of it. I got yeah, a picture yeah, yeah. Of, the, of like a million AIS but hits. We're not sending out a signal. No, we're not sending out a signal. Yeah. We just we just uh, received. We didn't transmit. We right. didn't we didn't have enough money to get one that did both. But you missed them all. We missed them all. And then we, you know, the wind died, and we didn't know how much fuel we had left. We we figured we didn't have much, and we were had to motor in the last couple hours. Now, at this point, we're, we're in like, you know, we're sort of in the harbor, motoring along for ways, but we didn't know if we we're about to run out of, of fuel, too, the whole time. We're like, shit, I hope we can just make it to the dock. But we did. We did, barely. I don't know, we had like a half gallon or something when we showed up. And there was some people there that the Japanese Gary Jobson was there. You know, it was nice. They gave us a giant bottle of sake. Nice. And, yeah, we jumped off the boat and had a little celebration. Problem, and this started beforehand, is that – before we left, uh, I was like, we, this boat needs to have proper documentation and yada, yada. We're going yeah. international. And I got into a bit of an argument with the owner. He was saying that he's going to document it as if it was coming on a freighter and not on the water. And I was saying, well, no. that shit's not going to work. Yeah, like, you can't have, lot. like, you know, whatever that thing is, it's a very different thing. It's not like a proper boat's documentation. We arrive in Japan, which is highly bureaucratic, and we don't have the right paperwork. And I didn't have a lot of time to argue with him when I'm building this boat. I just told him this ain't going to work. And, oh, no, we researched it, da-da-da-da-da. They tried to quarantine us on the boat for, like, two weeks, telling us we weren't allowed to leave the boat. It looked really bad because the Japanese are kind of, like, honor-centric and bureaucratic. And it's like, what do you mean you don't have the right paperwork? So, like, it was kind of an embarrassment for the people who threw us the party thing because then the word gets around we showed up without the right paperwork. Uh, yeah. And we're fucking quarantined. We want to get off the boat after all this time. And we're right there, and we're not supposed to leave the boat. You know, and like we need to take a shower and just basic ass yeah. shit. And I went on for a couple of weeks. And uh, really? eventually the, the owner actually flew out, had documentation with him. It was this whole shit show. And but I would have the Coast Guard show up one day. I'd have like various military police type show up, like all these rounds of people. And they were getting mad at me about it. Like because we like look like we look like assholes. Like we show up and they were like, you know, kept asking, why don't you have the right paper? Why didn't you bring it? What did it do? And I'm like, how am I supposed to explain in like broken English, Japanese? The boat, I had to actually. build the thing and I argued with the owner about it. You know, I told the dude this wasn't the right paperwork, but he swore up and down it was. And like, I didn't have time for his shit. And, oh, man. and they were just so they were all it was it was a shit. It was embarrassing. And it was a shit show. It was yeah, another shit that. show on top of a shit show. And then Not the uh, voyage you were anticipating. Yeah. So and then ways. I got pissed. I was going to sail the boat around to this other part of japan where this guy was who was going to sell the boat uh-huh. and i got off the boat there because i got all pissed off and then the owner of the company had me paying for the slip you know the nonprofit paying for the slip one to me that and what little money we had yep. and we had to ship all of our stuff back that was another massive ordeal we ended up putting it on a freighter and we don't speak japanese and they didn't really speak much english so trying to like coordinate shipping all this gear, life raft, monitor wind vane, all this stuff. I will say they boxed the monitor wind vane, mm-hmm. and it was the most beautiful fucking <laughs> packaging. It was amazing. It was this wooden box, and it wow. was so amazing that Mike Sheck, the owner, didn't want to take it out of the box. So at the boat show, he brought it and kept it as like a display because it was just gorgeous. But it was expensive. We spent all the last little money we had uh, for the nonprofit on that. Eventually, all that shit. We, you know, I got off the boat. I was like, "Oh, there's mosquitoes in there." And Nicole's getting bit by mosquitoes while we were like quarantined on the boat mm-hmm. every night. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I get off the boat. Like, look, dude, you can fucking hire somebody to take the boat around. Like, I was, yeah, I was You're pissed done. off. You're I was done. I was pissed at him. Yeah. I was pissed about 
having to build the boat. I was pissed about the bad paperwork. I was just pissed about the furler falling apart. It was just fucking pissed. So we went off and we traveled Japan for a couple of weeks, which was nice. We I climbed Mount Fuji with Nicole. Nice. And it was a brutal fucking hike. There was a, another typhoon coming at that point. It was blowing like 45, 50 knots. We were climbing oh, at wow. the end and raining sideways. And huh. But it wasn't typhoon stuff. It was some other shit before it, some other n- more normal system, I guess. Yeah. And I couldn't walk for like five days. I walked like a penguin for like five <laughs> well, you days. you hadn't done any walking for six yeah, days. Yeah, I didn't walk. All of a sudden. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the trip around the Americas took a lot out of my legs, too. I used to yeah. hike a lot. 309 yeah. days on a 27 all Vega. I didn't walk for 309 days, really. Huh. But anyways, we still climbed it. It was nice. And we went to some hot springs. Tom Harkin uh, gave us a, a little bit of money for when we got to Japan. Nice. So we used that money to go. Uh, and that's that's when the typhoon came. It actually worked out really well. The typhoon actually worked out really well for us in yeah. the end. This hot springs was kind of in the mountains by a river. It was the most beautiful place you could ever imagine. And we show up. We got the cheapest room in the whole place, right, because we had no money. And we show up and. And it's super formal, like traditional, you know, Japanese. Uh-huh. And they're like, we're so sorry. But the building, we had to close the building because we're, it's right next to a river. The hot springs are like right next to the river. You know, uh-huh. they got like rocks separating it. Okay. Gorgeous river. And uh, in a mountain valley. They're like, we're afraid that, you know, if this, this typhoon comes, it's going to flood the place. Yeah. And it's going to be, you know, the river's going to overflow. So we closed that building. We put you in a different building. We're so sorry. We have to give you a nice room. They gave us like one of the nicest rooms in the place. There was like five <laughs> rooms. It was like rooms within rooms within rooms. We had like a oh, b- little man. balcony that overlooked the river. We had like a, a vending machine right outside our door that sold sake. So I could just walk out there and get sake. Well, it sounds like after um, that trip, you uh, yeah, deserved that. No one was there. Everybody canceled it. Oh, so because of the typhoon. Because of the typhoon. So like me and Nicole had like this massive freaking. They had like five different hot springs. We had it all to ourselves. That's fantastic. You know? And you're walking around all naked because you know guys <laughs> don't wear clothes. You're just right. walking around the king of the well, world. Plus you got the run of the place. Who got cares? the run of the place. Nobody's there anyways. <laughs> and uh, yeah, awesome. it was that. That was that was definitely a highlight. And then we traveled around a bit more, and I drank a bunch more sake because I love sake. Well, the lesson of that story, it sounds like, besides trying to build a boat in a month and set sail, is. Have your own boat. Yeah, yeah. So we got to finish building this boat, which is, you know, I mean, it's a 72 feet overall, 65 feet on deck. It's actually slightly under 65 because if you're 65 or over, you get into a different uh, uh, regulation huh. for having people on board. Okay. We do not have to be, uh, um, what do they call it, a Coast Guard uh, inspected. Right. If we were like two inches bigger, we'd be Coast Guard inspected. I think they did that on purpose is <laughs> my nice. guess. It's a badass boat. We're trying to finish this damn thing. Uh, I need to get the heaters going, obviously, because it's about 55 in here now. It's freezing my ass off. Yeah, it's getting cold. We got to finish this up so we can turn the heater on. Well, that little heater ain't going to do much. I got to run errands and work work on this boat. It's probably colder in here than it is outside now. Yeah, probably. uh, Anyway, Matt, this has been awesome. Good luck finishing this up. I can't wait to follow the the first expedition. And congrats on all you've accomplished so far with this. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you can follow along on uh, the oceanresearchproject.org or make a donation. Yeah. On the website, uh, you can check out the Single-Handed Sailing podcast. Uh, and um, Many more We will make YouTube videos because you can't get around it these days. Honestly, I'd rather not be having a cameraman on board, but we will yeah. have one. And, um, and then when we get back from the expedition, we'll put out – a video a week uh, of the expedition. And you guys are looking for donations still for this. Yeah, no, we're, we're right? running out of money. I mean, really, it's just, I've already ran out of money several times in the last couple of months. And people can uh, do that right on your website? Uh, yes, you can. There's a donation button on the website, uh, awesome. and you can you can go right there. And we've always we've managed every time we run out to scrape a little more together, and we run out, we're, we're, we're just barely going to pull this shit off. 
and a boat needs a ridiculous amount of work done to it still, and uh, we have a month to get it in the water. So it's total chaos, kind of like at the WD Shock plant. And the, the, the final aspect of the thing is that uh, WD Shock went out of business, basically. Ah. They, there is uh, two different companies that will make a Harbor 20, yeah. uh, but they are not WD Shock. Okay. So they have, they have uh, basically the guy ran the company into the ground is what happened. And he made a lot of bad moves. And when I was there, I was watching it happen. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, the lead electrician got fired or quit or something, and he just picked some random dude. He's like, okay, you're an electrician now. And this guy was connecting red and black wires together and blowing fuses. And I had to explain to him that, like, no, the red wire is positive and the black wire is negative, and you cannot connect them together. And not at, a good sign. And at the boat show, this other broker who was one of their dealers was fucking livid. And it was like, all oh, my boats are showed up with bad wire in. My customers are, you know, I got this guy's ready to kill me. And Annapolis Yacht Sales, which was the biggest one in Annapolis, they used to sell them. They, they quit selling them because their boats were coming up all fucked up. Yeah. So basically, the, unfortunately, the, the company got run into the ground and they were doing a bunch of half-ass shit, which is no surprise after me telling all the story. And so you can get a Harbor 20. It's not built by them anymore, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, th- we have very few boat builders in the United States. And this was started in 1948. The Shock family did a great job with it for a long time. But uh, somebody bought it who never ran a boat company before. And a uh, nice guy, but a bit crazy. And it ended up running the company into the ground. And uh, and that's the end. That's so too bad. That was the one and only Harbor 29. The one, <laughs> one and done. Yep, yep. Well, thanks again, Matt. This was great. Yep, thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. As Matt mentioned, you can learn about and support the work of the Ocean Research Project at oceanresearchproject.org. Check out the Single-Handed Sailing podcast for more of Matt's stories and watch the movie about Matt's nonstop circumnavigation of the Americas called Red Dot on the ocean red dot on the ocean you can stream it free online i'm ben shaw host and producer of the show and until next time smooth sailing <laughs>